This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be talking today about the event that is usually referred to as the transfiguration of Jesus. Mark chapter 9, and we're going to look this morning at the first 13 verses of that chapter. So if you'll find that in your copy of God's Word, and let's look at it together. Mark chapter 9, and beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. But they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray together. Father, as we delve this morning into this event that is so shrouded in holiness and mystery, we pray that your Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to understand what is happening here and to understand its significance for our lives. So, just as you spoke from the cloud... And you, told, you commanded us to listen. We pray that you would give us the grace right now to listen to you. To listen to you as you speak through your word in the power of your spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've had the experience of looking at something through a microscope. And suddenly what was not identifiable with the naked eye suddenly becomes clear and you could identify what you were looking at but of course when we identify something under a, a microscope it's it's not really making 
a claim on our lives, even if our identification of it is correct, doesn't make a claim on us. That's not the case with Jesus. When we identify who Jesus is, there is there's a claim that is made upon our lives. Dr. James Edwards says this. He says, when believers confess who Jesus is, they also confess what they must become. Jesus is not like a rock under a microscope which can be observed and examined in neutrality. The statement, you are the Christ, imposes a claim on the one who says it. And that claim is this. If Jesus is the Messiah, if He's the Lord, if He's the King, then the claim that is made upon us is that we must turn from ourselves, from our sins, repent and trust in Him and follow Him. There's a claim that's imposed upon us. Now, in chapter 8, we saw that Jesus asked His disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter responded correctly, You are the Christ, the Messiah. But what we saw in chapter 8 is that Peter has the right vocabulary, but he has the wrong dictionary. He correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, but he has the wrong definition of what Messiahship is all about. Peter has been thinking that the Messiah was going to be about worldly glory and worldly victory, worldly success, and Jesus has to inform him that actually what it's going to be about is rejection and suffering and death. And not only that, Jesus says, not only am I headed to a cross, but I'm calling you, if you're going to follow me, I'm commanding you to deny yourself and to take up your cross. All of this happens at the end of chapter 8. So, as chapter 9 opens, these disciples are in an emotional tailspin. They are reeling from what he has just told them. That's where they are. That's the context as chapter 9 opens. Now, verse 1 is a transitional verse in nature. Let's look at it together. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he can't be talking about his second coming because he says that those who were standing there are going to be alive whenever this happens. So it's not that. Most scholars believe that what Jesus is talking about here is His resurrection. Now, how does that relate to the transfiguration in this way? What we're going to see in the transfiguration is like a preview of coming attractions. It is, it is a, a preview of the resurrection of Jesus. You know, when I go to movies, I, I like to watch the previews. I'm, I'm the kind of guy, I want to get there early and, you know, relax and, and, and settle in and, and watch the previews. And I've noticed that when I'm watching previews at the movies, I, I tend to make comments. 
And uh, not, not loud, I don't like it when people do that, but I'll whisper, whether it's I'm with Melissa or, you know, one of the kids, I'll, a preview will come on, and I'll whisper usually one of two things. I'll, I'll usually whisper, that looks really dumb. I want to see that. Or I'll whisper, I really want to see that. Well, this, this is a preview. The transfiguration is a preview that makes us say, I want to see that. It, it is a, it's a preview of the, the glory of Christ's resurrection. It's, it's, it's a glimpse of glory. That's, that's the first thing that it is, a, a glimpse of, of glory. Let's look at verse 2. The Bible says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now notice here that Jesus takes the inner core, only the inner core, of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. He does that on other occasions as well. We saw it in chapter 5 when Jesus raised that little girl from the dead. Who did he take into the room with him? We saw in chapter 5 and and verse 37 that it says he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And we're going to see this again in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14. The Bible says there, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. So there were times when Jesus would only take the inner circle of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. And in doing that, Jesus was modeling a very important principle of leadership, and it's this. Leaders invest in leaders. Leaders invest in in, in leaders. Jesus knew that the early church was going to need leadership. And he knew that Peter, James, and John were going to be at the forefront of that leadership. And so he especially invests himself in them. You know, Paul models this principle as well when he says in in 2 Timothy 2.2, he writes to Timothy, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Listen, if you are a mature believer, who are you pouring into? Who are you raising up? Who are you hanging out with and seeking to invest in and disciple? And if you are a relatively new believer, is someone pouring into you? Have you sought out a more mature believer who can mentor you and invest in you? you know, our mission statement is, as, as a church is to be a, a community of, of, of disciples who are making disciples. And that's what we see here. That's the, the, the principle here. Is Jesus pours himself into this, this inner circle. Now, we also see here in, in, in verse 2 uh, that he, he led them up a high mountain by themselves. They are probably still in the region of Caesarea Philippi at this point. And so in all likelihood, the, the mountain, the high mountain that they're on at this point is Mount Hermon. It's 9,200 feet above sea level. Really remarkable because only 25 miles away is the Sea of Galilee, which is 700 feet below sea level. So around the Sea of Galilee, you'll see citrus trees and bananas and things like that growing, stays warm, and then just 25 miles away, often at the right time of year, you can see snow on top of Mount 
Hermon. And so, in all likelihood, this is the mountain where the transfiguration takes place. And we see in the latter part of verse 2 and in verse 3 that he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, the word transfiguration in Greek is metamorphon, which is where we get our word metamorphosis, and it means to change, to change. And we need to understand what this change meant and what it did not mean. It did not mean that Jesus was, was changing and becoming glorious because He was already glorious. It means that Jesus' appearance was changing in such a way that it revealed His glory so that they could see it. You know, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says this about Jesus. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And here on the mountain these disciples are getting a glimpse of that glory. Verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, why these two? Well, think about it. Both Moses and Elijah were deliverers. Elijah was the prophet who was delivering the people from enslavement to Baal worship, enslavement to false gods. Moses was a deliverer who was, was, was leading them out of enslavement to the Egyptians. And of course, both of those deliverances pointed to the ultimate deliverer. Jesus delivers us from slavery to sin and death. So both Moses and Elijah are deliverers, and both Moses and Elijah are preparers. They were preparing the way. Moses was uh, given the law as a means of preparation. And uh, Elijah was a, a figure who was preparing the way for the Lord. There's one passage in the Old Testament where both of these guys appear together, and it bears on our text today. It's in Malachi chapter Four, and beginning with verse 4, where the Bible says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, where is that verse quoted? In the New Testament. In Luke Chapter 1 and verse 17, it says this, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now who is being spoken of here in Luke 117? It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an Elijah-like figure. Now keep that in your mind, okay, because we're going to circle back around to it in just a few minutes. 
Let's look at verses 5 and 6. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and, and one for Elijah. Now, at first we're tempted just to laugh at Peter. You know, he's impulsive. Sometimes he, he speaks without thinking and so forth and puts his foot in his mouth. And, and, and there's an element of that happening here. I mean, he is terrified. He doesn't know what to say. But the, the fact that his mind immediately sort of defaulted to asking about tents probably has a deeper significance. And it's this. Tents were very significant in the Old Testament. They had a feast of booths that was all about tents. And when the, the cloud of God's glory came down and met with the people when they were wandering in the wilderness, where did it come down? In a tabernacle. A tent. And now this cloud is coming down. That's probably maybe what's in Peter's mind here. But what he doesn't understand is that Jesus doesn't need a tabernacle because Jesus is the tabernacle. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says this, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Literally it means there that He tabernacled among us. He pitched His tent among us. And we beheld His glory. Now, there's an application for us from this, and it's this. We become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. If we are constantly looking to the world, to the ungodliness of this world, if we're enthralled by the world and, and, and constantly looking to uh, the ungodliness of, of, the, of the world, then guess what? We're going to become more and more like the ungodliness of this world. But if we are constantly looking to Jesus, beholding Jesus, gazing upon Jesus, okay, through His Word, allowing His Word to, to renew and, and transform uh, our minds and hearts, if we're, if we're looking to Him through uh, worship and through prayer and, and through uh, fellowship with other believers, you know, if we're, if we're constantly looking to Jesus, then the result is that we, we become more and more like Jesus. We, we, we become whatever we behold. 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Francis Chan tells about uh, when he was pastoring in California, had a special guest to come and speak at their church, and this guy had been a missionary in New Guinea, and he told a beautiful story about sharing the gospel uh, with this tribe. And he said, he said at the end, he said, the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing today is because of the, the influence of my former uh, youth pastor, my student pastor, a guy named Vaughn. He led me to Christ. He poured his life into me. He, he discipled me. I'm doing what I'm doing today really because of his influence. Well, the next week, they had another guest speaker. And this guy told about his ministry, and he, was, uh, he was, uh, had a ministry to impoverished uh, kids. And he, and he said, he said that the, the, humanly speaking, the reason I'm doing what I'm doing today was, was the, the influence of my former youth pastor, a guy named Vaughn. He led me to Christ. He invested in me. He discipled me. The third week, 
they had another speaker. This is a friend of Francis named, named Dan. And so Dan came and, and he shared. And, and after his message, Francis said, you know, it's funny. The last two guys that came told about the influence of their, of their former uh, youth pastor, a guy named Vaughn. And Dan looked at him and he said, I know Vaughn. Uh, he's a pastor now in, in San Diego. And he spends a lot of his time in Tijuana uh, ministering in the slums to these kids. In fact, I was with him the other day. I spent the day with him. And he took me to Tijuana. And he said, we, we spent the day just walking through these, these slums and these garbage dumps. And these, these little kids would come running up to Vaughn. And he would hug them and he would, he would give them little gifts and give them food. And he would tell each of them about Jesus. And, and he, he said there, there was such, such a deep love and affection for these children. And he said, Francis, it was eerie. He said, the whole day I kept thinking, you know, if, if Jesus were here and I could spend the day walking around with him, I think it might look something like this. And Francis Chan said, you know, I got to praying about that. And, and I said, Lord, I don't care about being the greatest speaker in the world. <laughs> That's not my desire. I don't care about being the smartest person on the planet. I don't want to be known for that. What I'd love to be known for is for people to look at my life and say, you know what? His life looks an awful lot like Jesus. That's God's purpose. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that happens more and more in our lives as we behold Jesus, as we look to Jesus more and more. So we see here a glimpse of glory. Second, we see a command from the cloud. A command from the cloud. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now this sounds very much like something that we saw earlier in this gospel, doesn't it? It sounds like the words that the Father says at the baptism of Jesus, which we saw in chapter 1. We saw there in chapter 1 in verses 10 and 11 that when, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Now, at the baptism, the voice of the Father was speaking to Jesus. But at the transfiguration, the voice of the Father is speaking about Jesus to the disciples and to you and me. And He gives us a command. Listen to Him. Now think about the context. In chapter 8, we saw that Jesus told them what His Messiahship was all about that He was going to be rejected. He was going to suffer. He was going to the cross. And, and, and what was their reaction? They didn't want to hear it. Peter took Him aside to rebuke Him. And Jesus, of course, had to rebuke Peter and He had, he had to tell all of them, look, if, if this doesn't happen, if I, don't, if I don't go to the cross, there's no hope for you. No hope. 
If Jesus didn't go to the cross and take our sins upon Himself and pay the price for our sins, if Jesus didn't allow all of the evil of the world to converge upon Him on the cross and atone for our sins, and if He didn't defeat sin and death by rising from the dead, there is no hope. But remember in chapter 8, they, 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 they weren't prepared to hear that. They didn't want to listen. They wanted to talk. They wanted to rebuke Jesus. And the Father is saying here, listen. Listen to Him. The application for us is that when we take up our Bibles and open them, let's be prepared to listen. Let's approach the Word of God with humble, open, listening, receiving hearts. When you open your Bible, ask the Spirit to help you to have just a, a posture of utter humility. That, and that He would open the eyes of your heart. And, and that you would get, ask the Spirit to help you just to put aside any, any agenda of your own, any, any hidden agenda, any presupposition, any bias, so that when we open our Bibles, we are not looking for the Bible to confirm our agendas, our presuppositions. We are not looking for our Bibles to, to confirm us in our biases. When we open our Bibles... We should put ourselves just beneath the Word and ask the Spirit to speak to us and to make us humble, humble, and just open and vulnerable and, 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 and ready for God to, to speak to us so that we're being formed and shaped by the Word and we're not trying to form and shape the Word ourselves. It, we're, we're allowing the Word to form and shape us. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. The third thing we see here is a promise amid persecution. A promise amid persecution. Verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, what's going on here? Earlier, in Malachi 4, we saw that there was a promise of an Elijah-like figure that would precede the coming of the Messiah. And what Jesus understands and what these disciples don't completely understand at this point is that that Elijah-like prophet has come. And it was John the Baptist. Now, Matthew's account of this conversation makes this very, very clear. We see it in Matthew chapter 17. 
and, uh, and beginning with verse 10, where the Bible says this. It says, and the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And what did they do to John the Baptist? They killed him. And Jesus is saying here, if they did that to the forerunner of the Messiah, then what are they going to do to the Messiah? They're going to kill him. And if they do that to the Messiah, then what are they going to do to you? Now, that doesn't sound very comforting, but to Mark's original readers, who were probably in Rome in the mid-60s, the early to mid-60s A.D., it was very much meant as a word of comfort. Because these brothers and sisters were seeing Nero crucify some of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They were seeing some of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ used as human torches, their bodies set afire and used as human torches. They were, they were seeing all of this horrific persecution that was taking place. This is happening in many parts of the world today. Now, we have never had to live in that context, but, but if we did, what might one of our major temptations be? One of our temptations would be to think that God has forgotten us, that God has abandoned us. And see, what, what, what Mark is seeking to communicate here to these persecuted believers is that, look, your persecution does not mean that God has forgotten you. Your persecution means that you are in good company. <laughs> it means that you are truly identified with Him. This is one of the marks of a believer is that those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so he ha- not only has He not forgotten you, but He's with you. He's with you. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Those last three words are not meant to be just sort of throwaway words. They are not meant to be just sort of a, a redundant piece of information. Now, there's a message that's being communicated here. Dr. James Edwards, great scholar on Mark, brings this out. He says this of verse 8, Despite the ominous ring of suffering and death, Jesus stands alone with them. In the depths of their bewilderment, Jesus is with the disciples. The disciples, then and now, are not expected to go it alone in this hard and joyous thing of 
discipleship. Jesus wants them to know that no matter what you walk through, you're not going to walk through it alone. This is the promise of Isaiah chapter 43 when God promises this, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Listen. No matter what you go through in life, you remember this. The one who manifested his glory on the mountain is going to be with you in the valley. The one who showed us His glory on the mountain, the one who was transfigured, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who revealed His glory on the mountain is going to walk with you through the valley. You're never alone. Never will He leave you. Never will He forsake you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the promise of your presence. We thank you for the power of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to live our lives beholding Jesus, constantly looking to Jesus and allowing the Spirit of God to transform our lives. Father, I pray for anyone here who came into this sanctuary today not knowing Jesus. I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts right now to turn from self, to turn from sin, and to turn to Jesus as King, as Messiah, and say, Lord, I trust you. I give you my life. I follow you. And we ask it in his name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about following Jesus, you say, I want to follow him. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. Jesus tells us that when we decide to follow Him, that we're to acknowledge Him publicly before others. As others stand and sing, I want to invite you, just slip out where you are. I'm going to be right here at the front. Just share with me what God is doing in your life. Say, Pastor, I've decided to follow Jesus. Maybe you're here today and God's speaking to you about having this church family as your church home, we cannot possibly live for Jesus without the support that, that we find in a local church. And if God's leading you here, we want to invite you to come today. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you about that. If there's a need in your life, come and pray. You can pray with someone, me or one of our pastors. You can pray at the altar. It's open for you. Let's stand together as we sing. hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. 
I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.